Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Piotr Krasicki. I'm a history professor at the University of Maryland in College Park. My guest today is Professor Michael Fleming, and we're going to be talking about his book, In the Shadow of the Holocaust, Poland, the United Nations War Crimes Commission, and the Search for Justice, which appeared just last year, 2022, with Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the program. Michael Piotr, pleasure to be here. Oh, thanks very much for joining us. Now, uh, Professor Fleming is a historian and the director of the Institute of European Culture at the Polish University Abroad in London. And in addition to the book that we are discussing today, his publications include Auschwitz, the Allies and Censorship of the Holocaust, also out with Cambridge in 2014, and Communism, Nationalism, Ethnicity in Poland, 1944 to 1950, which was published in 2010. He is a recipient of the Kulczycki Book Prize for Polish Studies and the Aquila Polonica Prize. So I always start out my conversations uh, for this podcast with one straightforward question. What brought you to this topic? And for you, I'll maybe add a little wrinkle to the question, which is that you've written a great deal before about uh, information flows and censorship thereof during World War II. Did you know when you were writing your previous book that you were going to write this one, or was it a completely different turn? Not at all. Uh, this, this book really comes out of uh, previous work. Uh, when I finished that earlier book on Auschwitz, there were a number of little things which still needed to be looked at. Uh, and I was very interested for quite a period of time on the responses of the labor movement towards this news that came through. And I was walking along that particular path for a while. And then there were a couple of books that came out towards maybe six, seven years ago, uh, which really sparked my interest in the issue of justice, uh, one of which is Dan Plesch's book, uh, Human Rights After Hitler, and uh, the book by Gabriel Feinzer and Alexander Prussian, uh, Justice Behind the Iron Curtain. And reading those books, I realised, and looking through some of the documents which they looked at, I realised that I knew the text in many of those final indictments uh, where it came from, from Warsaw to London, and ultimately finds its way into some of these indictments. I thought, okay, there's something here. Uh, there's a story to be told here. And, you know, when we think about you know, the pursuit of justice, we often focus uh, on Nuremberg. But then the question is, well, how do we get to Nuremberg? You know, what are the processes? What are the legal flows? What are the legal entanglements that enable uh, the kind of indictments which arrived at uh, Nuremberg to actually be, you know, to, thought, to be thought about. And there was a prelude to Nuremberg. And obviously there's a great book by Arya Covey uh, from the late 1990s with that very title. But there's also a prelude to the prelude. Uh, and so I was very interested in the development of legal knowledge uh, in wartime London uh, and the way in which information circulated. And one of the things which really excited me was this, relationship between knowledge uh, and information and the way in which information about atrocities uh, was transformed into knowledge about war crimes and that entire process but whereby various actors in London were trying to make the legal case against uh, the Nazi regime against perpetrators and indeed from very early on uh, the the hierarchy the the main uh, the main war criminals, the arch war criminals. So that's the that's the process by which this this particular project, this book, uh, came about. Well, so I, if I may follow up on this question of how information becomes knowledge, because it's really central to. I mean, it is the the the, the central axis for your book, I think, uh, conceptually, and in some sense, it's extraordinary to think about that phrase as real people producing real institutions and quite a lot of different institutions, right? There are multiple commissions, multiple auxiliary and ancillary bodies in the yes. story. Do you have a sense in, 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 if you were sort of looking back on the story as you've written it, is there one particular moment that you would identify where you say, okay, obviously it's a process, but information really began to turn into knowledge uh, at that point? Uh, well, it's, it's, it happens fairly early. So 
you know, in the early part of the book, I talk about some of the publications uh, which the the Polish government exile put out, uh, the white book series, and even the black book series, which includes photographs. And the way these are, are framed, in many cases, makes use of legal type language. There's always reference to the Hague Conventions. And I think that's important. There's always this attempt uh, to, to, to put these atrocities into this longer framework of the move to international justice. And it's interesting that the people doing this, the people who are commissioning these these books to be written, uh, belong to the uh, the Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. There's a couple of people there who are very keen uh, to put it in this particular framework. And of course, at the same time, you have um, a Ministry of Justice within that government, and they are working uh, through 1942 uh, to develop a law on war crimes. Of course, prior to that, these people are engaged in these commissions uh, which really form, you know, 1941, the autumn of 1941, the Cambridge Commission, uh, the International London Assembly, at which war crimes as such are being discussed. And so what we see over the course of 1941 into 1942 is a group of international jurists talking a lot, both in London and in Cambridge, about war crimes. And of course, what is a war crime? Uh, there's no real definition at this point. So they always lean back to uh, the Versailles uh, Treaty, the Versailles Settlement, and look at how they conceived the war crimes. And this is a starting point for them, uh, to start to think more broadly about the types of uh, actions which are happening in occupied Europe, uh, particularly from the Polish point of view in occupied Poland, and to put them in a legal framework um, which I think is, is very interesting. These legal entanglements over this period of time uh, are absolutely crucial, in my view, for the development of legal knowledge, which actually leads to, ultimately, Nuremberg, and then a bit later on, uh, after Lemkin's book on, uh, where he coins the phrase genocide, into various conventions, which come a bit later. Uh, so it's a very important moment, I think, of development of legal knowledge about international justice. Uh, and it's something, I think, we can look back on, you know, with, with the situation in Ukraine uh, today, and we can see, okay, this is what these jurists were doing. They looked at the gaps in international law and sought to fill them with something tangible. And they brought people to trials in many different locations in the post-war period. So it's striking to me, of course, on some level, the, the polls had to be central to this story because they were the ones transmitting the most amount of direct testimony from the ground, from the principal laboratory of German atrocity during the war. But you do bring up some non-Poles as well, and including Bohusaf Echer, someone of whom I had never heard before, uh, then Herbert Pell on the American side. Uh, there are some British scholars who are friendlier than others. I mean, Lauterpacht has a complicated history, but he was definitely an important player in the story. Uh, how important were the non-Polish receptive ears here? Because, of course, if I read the early chapters of your book, the Foreign Office comes out villainous. <laughs> <laughs> and Anthony Eden in particular, stonewalling at every turn. Well, the, well, the, the British and the Americans uh, were, wanted to keep their hands free until, you know, very late in the war. Uh, they weren't committing to anything, whereas, you know, uh, people with connections to continental Europe... Um, knew what was happening to friends, family, uh, co-citizens, and were very alert that something needed to be done. Whether that's in terms of uh, just informing, trying to encourage a policy response in terms of retaliation, and of course thinking about you know the post-war regime of justice. Now these other people, you know, there's the French are pretty important as well. René Casson, I think, is a very interesting individual. Uh, and his work in the Cambridge Commission especially, but also in other four, uh, is, is very important. Uh, a bit later on, Borisov, Etcher, as you mentioned, is pretty aggressive. I mean, he he's influenced by uh, Russian legal doctrines, and he, he basically brings in a Russian perspectives um, from Alan Trainen, uh, the, the Russian legal scholar, into discussions at the United Nations War Crimes Commission and presents their views 
especially in relation to various uh, various serious crimes. So he's he's a very important person who's you know, one of the people driving the pace. Herbert Powell, uh, he is absolutely crucial in this story, I think. I mean, he's, he's advocating, uh, you know, the United Nations War Crimes Commission to c- consider crimes against humanity. And this brings in uh, German crimes against Jews in Germany itself, uh, which I think is, is, is very important. And then you have Stefan Glazer from the Polish side. And these, these people in the early stages of the United Nations War Crimes Commission are really shaping that organization to, to an extent, you know, those early months, you know, in late uh, 43 into early 45, 44. Um, so, so they are very important. And there's a whole range of other individuals uh, who, who made contributions. You know, I, I know Cecil Hurst at the International London Assembly sometimes gets a bad rap, but I think he's a lot more sympathetic than, than a lot of people have made out. And obviously he did resign. Uh, or was, you know, in, in 45. So it, it, it is an interesting story. Uh, so you brought up Aaron Trinan. A, I, I know him most recently as one of the stars of Francine Hirsch's books of your judgment at Nuremberg. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's, it's impossible to talk about what Russian and Soviet legal thought brought to the table here without also talking about the Soviet atrocities. And that's something you highlight early on in the book, of course, is how do you put it, the, the dual... <laughs> the dual sensibility that was required of uh, the Polish jurists. Of course, that means different things at different stages in your story. But uh, I mean, looking back, is it is it? Are you surprised, or maybe that's not quite the right term? But how, how should we assess the ability of some and the inability of others to compartmentalize this way when they were participating and trying to reach a consensus? With their allied partners, I think it was phenomenally difficult. Uh, phenomenally difficult for a lot of those Polish jurists not to really activate in the in these international forum what the Soviet Union was doing, whether that's in uh, thirty nine, forty, and of course, you know, it all comes to a head in for April forty three with the discovery of the Katyn graves, uh, and this is the beginning of the the Cold War for Poland um, and. You know that that should be our periodization. I think you know this, this is this is where the, the Poles lose a lot of influence because you know the Americans and and the British realize that the Soviet Union was absolutely crucial for the war effort against Nazi Germany. And I think a lot of Poles recognize that reality, but it didn't make that pill any less bitter to swallow. It's very difficult for for many of them. Of course, a number of these Jews actually go back, and you know I argue in, in the book. That they go back because they they really want to uh, see justice done for for the millions who, who who were killed, and the only way that was really going to happen if if they get involved with the legal system in in post war Poland where they could bring some people to try in those domestic domestic courts, it's difficult for a lot of these people for sure. Uh, one of the the names you mentioned earlier on is Stefan Glazer. I, I in my own sort of per, per personal research life, I looked at him a lot as a Christian Democrat. But of course, he's an example of someone who would draw on the, the networks of legal flows that emerged during 1941, 1942, and would actually stay afterwards. I'm curious, given the focus on London, because the book really does play out in so many ways in London, uh, was uh, a certain contingent within the, and I don't just mean because the government in exile stayed there, but among the Polish legal scholars, some would go back because they wanted to pursue the matter to the end in terms of doing justice. Uh, For those who would stay, like Glazer, do you think it was a matter principally of not being able to stomach that duality that that you were talking about? Or uh, were there other considerations? I I think that's a big part of it. I think some of these people uh, had some difficult experiences in the late 1930s where they seen another quite authoritarian government. Uh, and I suppose they saw the emergence of uh, the, the communist regime in through that authoritarian lens. And they thought, OK, this really isn't for me. Uh, and they also, I feel, uh, saw some good opportunities. You know, Glazer went on to teach in, in Belgium. Uh, he had a pretty decent career 
in, in Western Europe. Uh, the head of the War Crimes Office, uh, Leslie Latavsky, continued working with the United Nations War Crimes Commission until it closed down in 1948. Uh, and then other people built lives. I mean, they built relationships. Even London for the wartime period, they built connections. Uh, and obviously, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, OK, you know, wh where's my home? It may have moved. It may not be in the same state it was. So it, for some of these people, they really didn't have that kind of choice. Uh, you know, they weren't going home because their home was in Belarus or in Ukraine or somewhere else. I'm going to double back for a moment to the question of how the UN War Crimes Commission actually emerged. And I, there were two different things I wanted to ask you. One question may be really very elementary, but I think it might be useful uh, for a broader audience like we have listening to this podcast. That is, when does it make sense really to start talking about UN <laughs> in the context of United Nations? And is that really, is the story you're telling really the story in which we should start thinking about United Nations meaning something uh, in the international, certainly in the international legal order, but maybe more generally in the international order? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, United Nations was, was just another name for the Allies, right? You know, so during the Second World War, this is what they called themselves. And Roosevelt, I think, in '41, uh, you know, makes makes reference to this. Um, so I think, you know, even though it's not, you know, founded, you know, as it was officially founded at, at this early point, uh, there there is this notion floating around, and I think that's important. The United Nations War Crimes Commission is the Allies, right? And they are looking at war crimes, and they're not looking at, at war crimes in Europe. They're also looking at war crimes in the Pacific as well. So it is a global attempt. Uh, to deal with the malign legacy of the Second World War, which spanned the entire globe. Uh, so I think I think we we can look back and think, okay, these are important moments to the foundation of the official organisation, uh, which comes a bit later. So, given the persistent scepticism within the British foreign policy establishment, what would you say really made possible? The British assent, which was crucial for actually creating the UN uh, War Crimes Commission, was it? Because you talk about comments that Churchill made and yeah. pledging wartime or post-war retribution. Was it? Was it Churchill? Was it? What was it? I, I think the Foreign Office needs to be seen in terms, you know, the long-term strategy of essentially giving Britain a free hand at each stage. So they don't want to be. Uh, held back by previous commitments. And, you know, the war goes on for a long time. They know it's going to go on for a long time. Uh, they have the experience of the post-First World, World War settlement, uh, the trials at Leipzig. They don't want to get burdened with having to try German war criminals, right? And they come up with all kinds of excuses not to pursue this aggressively. Um, at the same time, the governments and exiles are putting tremendous pressure, uh, both on the Foreign Office, but also, probably more importantly, on senior British politicians. And I think Churchill comes out of this sometimes in a pretty good light because he is uh, responding. He, he, he responds uh, by delivering quite some quite fiery speeches. And of course, once he's delivered a quite fiery speech, it sets a new uh, line in the sand. Okay, the governments and exile go to that point refer back to Churchill's speech and say, come on, we need to move forward on this. Uh, so I think in the development of uh, the movement towards the UN War Crimes Commission, Churchill does play uh, a role uh, in, in adding momentum. But this is only because he's under continuous pressure from these governments in exile. Of course, he has his own reasons to pursue his particular agenda. At the same time, I also think Churchill's friend, uh, Brendan Bracken, is quite important in this story. You know, if you remember in July 1942, he hosts a conference at the Ministry of Information in London uh, at which uh, the Poles talk about the latest news from Poland. And this includes news from uh, Helmno. Uh, it includes a speech by Ziegelboy talking about 700,000 Polish Jews 
having been murdered. Uh, it includes a speech by the Minister of Interior, Stanislaw Mikowajczyk, who mentions Belzhets. So he's also quite important. Uh, and then we see at the same time these publications coming out, both official publications, semi-official publications, some publications which the hand of the Polish government isn't so clear in, but they've got funding. So there's, all, there's building within various elite circles amongst journalists, amongst politicians, pressure, and it takes time. And I think that's the important thing. This pressure takes time to really build. And the question for me really is, is why during the 19, summer of 1942 uh, is not more pressure, uh, more information not released? Why is there a certain suppression of information during that crucial period, for example, about the about the Warsaw Ghetto? We, we know that some very important information which arrived in the summer of 1942 was suppressed. Uh, and that raises the question, of course, you know, had the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Polish government been more proactive at that point, uh, could the timescale before you know, a UN declaration be a bit shorter, you know, maybe October rather than December 1942? These are what-ifs. And so you know, we always ask ourselves these what-ifs uh, for heuristic purposes, but I think it's a useful question to to, to consider. Um, I was struck when I was reading your, your book, just thinking about the chronology for a moment, because you, you, you invest, I think rightly, a lot of importance in the St. James Palace uh, meeting of January 1942. Of course, it would have been roughly around the same time that the Wannsee Conference was playing out in January 1942. Not directly connected, but it tells us something about the timelines and yes. about the profound importance of that contingency you just mentioned. So, I mean, how can we avoid those counterfactuals? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, that conference, you know, the Poles and, and the French were trying to get this organized uh, earlier, you know, first late November, then into December, it's pushed back because the Americans weren't on board, the Soviets weren't on board, it was trying to get everyone on board. By the time it happens, you know, it's almost a month after Helmut opens in, in, in central Poland. So, you know, War crimes go on the international agenda through this official statement by uh, the nine countries uh, who've got government in exile in London, plus the Chinese also uh, approve it. And things are really taking a turn for the worse in continental Europe at this point. Uh, so, you know, there's a power of development. You know, things are getting bad in Europe. War crimes are coming on the agenda in uh, in wartime London. I mean, of course, there was also a shift in progress uh, within, I mean, you talk about discursive struggles a lot within uh, mm -hmm. the book. And I think, of course, there's the one within the Allied camp, among the major allies, the minor allies, and then within the Polish government in exile itself, to what extent to emphasize or not the fact that there was specific targeting, not just targeting, but mass campaign of extermination against Poland's Jewish population. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it really took even, I mean, you, you mentioned 1942 a moment ago, even well into, if not almost the end of 1942, for the Polish government in exile, really to commit to highlighting Jewish suffering. Well, I mean, they, they do, uh, once a whole new tranche of information arrives in November, uh, and you know, this, this has a, a real significant effect uh, now, of course, they, they could they, the earlier material could have that same effect. You know, they had a lot of material from from June. They had material from the from the about the Warsaw Ghetto earlier. But it, it turns out that the the November material is the material which which cuts through to some extent. Uh, there is a number of conferences. Uh, obviously, the big speech in the Houses of Parliament or the UN Declaration on the seventeenth of December. Uh, but soon after that, of course, the attention of People in the Ministry of the Interior shifts to Zamosh and Poles again, uh, and so this 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 struggle continues, and it continues all through forty three. So the 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 Jewish tragedy is known about, but you know one of the reasons, and this is, goes back to my earlier work on, on Auschwitz, you know that information was arriving all the time, all through from late nineteen forty two, all through nineteen forty three but it never got the attention that it deserved. Uh, and this is why we've had since 81 repeated claims that that camp, the true function of that camp was unknown. 
because that particular discussion, struggle uh, was unsuccessful. It was, you know, a lot of people were unable to put that camp on the map for what it was, despite all the information circulating in newspapers, amongst journalists, amongst uh, various politicians. So it's it's very difficult. Now you have to work out, well, why is this? Why why was some news uh, able to reach into the public domain uh, and become part of a, a general sense of knowledge of what's happening in continental Europe? And some information wasn't. And part of this is, of course, about you know how various places were associated with certain groups from early on in the war and the ways in which the political configuration within uh, the Polish government exile sustained that narrative, despite so much information about particular places coming through. Uh, so I don't think this is an easy story to tell because there were, there were so many points of resistance uh, and difficulties. Um, but saying that, uh, as soon as we get to talking about the jurists rather than the politicians, uh, we can see those jurists making significant attempts to uh, put across the crimes in occupied Poland uh, as fairly as they can. And so, you know, the Polish War Crimes Office submits 41 indictments. And around one third of those deal with uh, German crimes against Jews. And they deal with them in a fashion which we'd recognize today. You know, the incremental escalation of discrimination, ultimately resulting in uh, deportation, ghettos and extermination in death camps. And there are several files dealing with various camps. There's a tremendous, tremendously important file dealing with Treblinka, uh, which charges a number of Germans with uh, crimes of killing hundreds of thousands of people at that particular camp. And there is an extraordinary uh, charge file which charges Adolf Hitler with with crimes, and I think this is this is one of the most interesting indictments in the collection of of these indictments. There's 1,500 of these charge files submitted to the United Nations War Crimes Office by the Polish War Crimes Office, both when the under the government in exile, when it's under the communist or the government in Warsaw. But this particular charge file. Uh, makes use of Roman law to make the case. It makes reference to the development of the idea of the rule of law, Magna Carta. Uh, and then it has an extraordinary line, you know, the crime of the Jews was they dared to be born. And this really pulls down exactly what was happening in those absolute terrible times in the early 1940s. Well, since we're talking about the charge files, I wonder if I could step back for a second and think about sources and methods the charge files in so many ways are the beating heart of your source work, and especially the, the second half of the book. But, but really, it, I mean, it's extraordinary to read. And I, I, I was thinking about the Hitler charge file as well uh, before we started our conversation. May I just ask, how did you come to the charge files and what did you think the first time you started reading them? Okay, the, the charge files, uh, it was through the efforts, the intercessions of Dan Plesch, actually, that uh, the UN... Uh, War Crimes Commission charge files were made accessible. I mean, they were stuck in New York for years and, you know, difficult to get hold of. Um, so going through them, you know, what was was a enlightening moment because, A, a lot of this material is, is, hasn't been known. You know, I don't... There is not much written on it still. Um, and the way in which these charge files are put together, uh, if you've got some awareness of Polish intelligence operations and Polish intelligence messaging, you can see where the information is coming from, right? And so, you know, I think I made a comment in the book about how the efforts of the underground state in Poland was linked to the grand meeting rooms of the Court of Justice in London through these charge files, right? Um, and the text is just reworked in many cases. Um, there are also some of these charge files, actually, some of the drafts are actually available in the IPN in Warsaw. So you can see in more detail the way in which uh, the jurists in the War Crimes Office tried to put them together, going through Polish in, um, by hand, and then ultimately into English, into a, you know, in a typed form. 
uh, and they are extraordinary. And what you can also see is is the the planning, and this is important because one of the advantages of the of the the Polish War Crimes Office was that they had a whole series of regular information, tranches of information arriving from occupied Poland from very early on the war with names, uh, with ranks. So they could identify particular crimes, places, and quite often individuals. And so they were able to think about their submissions to the War Crimes Office in a strategic way. Well, what crime do we want to uh, indict on? Not just about the people, but what we're going to indict on. Let's have a good spread. Because they recognised they couldn't indict on every single crime that was committed. <laughs> it was an impossible task. So they could think about different types of crimes. So you have ones related to culture, against intellectuals, uh, against uh, sexual and gender-based violence, um, and, of course, against uh, the Jewish population as well. Uh, so this is another way in which the War Crimes Office influenced debates within the United Nations War Crimes Commission itself by putting forward particular indictments against particular individuals, including senior German leaders, thereby you know, challenging to some extent the decisions that, at the Moscow Conference of 43, uh, and thereby expanding understanding of the Nazi regime uh, in the process amongst these legal thinkers at the UNWCC. And they led the way all the way up until uh, 45 in charge, charge file submissions. Uh, and you know Cecil Hurst describes the War Crimes Office as an example to other War Crimes Office uh, to, 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 to follow. So I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, one point that you brought up also, that I think worth underlining, and, and it's very argument you underlined in the book, the, the question of sexual and gender-based violence, and in some sense the the innovation that it these uh, it, it, the prominence of, uh, of this sexual and gender-based violence represented in the charge files. Although there were choices made also about what kinds of sexual and gender-based violence to include in the charge files. I don't know if I could just ask you to talk about that for a minute. Yes, I mean, this is, this is quite interesting because early on in, in the war, in the Black Book series, uh, they include material on gender and sexual-based violence, and it's, it's quite extensive. When we get to the charge files, a lot of that extensive material is not there. What we have is a more sanitized, in many ways, an account of what's happening. So gender and sexual-based crimes against Poles tends to be restricted uh, in, in these charge files to the camps. Uh, and I suspect the reason for this is uh, to, to do with the way in which the nation was being conceived and the way in which by restricting this national humiliation to the camps, um, then the positive, the positive future for the reborn uh, nation. And this is quite a familiar strategy in war, you know, in which rape is used as a way to denationalize, to uh, humiliate, uh, as well as, you know, torture these individual women uh, through, through this, this horrendous crime or these horrendous crimes. When we're talking about gender and sexual violence against Jews, uh, the, the charge files are a little bit more open in the sense that these crimes aren't restricted to camps. They are happen in villages and towns. But the number is still very small. And it's not uh, it's obviously not a priority. Uh, so I was I speculate that had there been more women jurists within the War Crimes Office, maybe. But this seems to be a strategic decision to soft pedal. Uh, this, these particular crimes. They are there, uh, but they don't get the attention that you may f think they deserve, especially since uh, these crimes were discussed in the black books early on in the war. Now, this is a general tendency, because if we look at other charge files from other national war crimes offices, uh, the, the number of such crimes is, is relatively low compared to what you might expect it to be. The important point, of course, it's there. And for a long time, uh, scholars haven't been aware that you know gender 
and sexual-based crimes form part of these, these indictments. And I think this is important, uh, especially when we're thinking about um, the types of war crimes which are being committed right now. Uh, I think, you know, we can reflect back and say, well, this is how these jurists tackle this issue. Um, can we learn anything from it in our pursuit of, of justice for for victims of such crimes today? Uh, it's the point you were making about constituting and reconstituting the nation through planning for the post-war. I, I'm struck, even though a lot of these discussions were playing out before Raphael Lemkin actually published Axis Rule in Occupied Europe, the prominence of cultural sense of, I mean, we don't have to call it genocide, but the, the war crimes, the cultural versus the biological. I'm mm -hmm. curious if you feel, I mean, obviously there is a taboo here and your point, I think about the absence of women jurists is, is really crucial. I, I'm curious if you feel like there was a bit of a trade-off there where the decision was made to invest more attention, attract more attention to the destruction of, let's say, Polish culture and Polish cultural artifacts and maybe play down this idea of ubiquitous mass rape and sexual crime? To some extent, yes, I, I kind of would. I mean, there was this book published in 1945, Nazi culture in, in, in Poland, it occupied Poland. Uh, I was just talking about, you know, Polish culture, but Polish culture defined in terms of an ethnic core rather than the culture of the, the Polish lands as such. And so, you know, there's a little couple of lines at the end of that particular book where it just says the Jewish culture is such a big topic, it'll be discussed elsewhere. And it really, really wasn't. Uh, so there's this tendency all the way through, I think, to to, to privilege uh, certain forms of culture. Uh, and I think it's interesting that the, the people collecting material on crimes against culture, uh, one of which was for Peter Korski's secretary, Strecker, uh, and another guy was uh, at, the, at the embassy in in London. And they do a pretty good job when, it, when they're looking at the particular issues they're interested in. Uh, the question is, well, does this really reflect the, the culture of the of the Polish, Polish lands? And the answer is probably not really. It's, it's a segment of it. Uh, so this, this is an idea in which um, a particular culture is being privileged. And I think this is quite important when we think about those other debates about who was a real Polish citizen. Because at the same time, we, I think we need to remember that the Polish government had conversations with Eden uh, in '42, saying that Poland could not have 3 million Jews after the war. And so that puts it in a certain framework that, you know, this differential incorporation, even when we get you know, all the uh, hard work of the people at the war crimes office, they're operating in a particular political environment, uh, which is not always the, the most uh, conducive uh, for a honest reflection on what's actually happened in in those, those, those years. If I may ask, uh, Raphael Lemkin, of course, is a, is a story apart here, and it's, this is a story that's been well told in many respects, but he, he both is and is not part of the story that you're telling. He's not central for most of it, but then, of course, later on, his, uh, his book shows up at the UNWCC, and it migrates back to uh, the, well, onto the ground, let's say, on Polish soil. I'm just curious, the, the description that you just gave, which is absolutely crucial for that transition from the war years to the post-war and the ethnicization of Polishness, uh, of course, cultural genocide can lend, can lend itself to that kind of interpretation if we read Lemke in a certain way. I understand there's maybe a bit of a chicken and the egg question, but I'm just curious where you see Lemkin fitting into this conversation. Uh, was he was he used as a kind of a supporting evidence uh, in this pursuit? Or? Well, Lemkin's very interesting. As, as you say, his, his book does arrive at the UNWC, I think, in October 45. And this is at a point where there's a uh, delegation from Poland has just arrived in London. A uh, load of jurists arrive in London. And they're at this session. And they obviously get a copy of this book. And one of the people present was a uh, prosecutor called Savitsky. And, you know, he goes back, he's on the trial of Arthur Greiser and introduces this 
notion of genocide in the, into that charge, which I think is quite interesting the way in which these, these, these flows of knowledge actually work. Lemkin's important for me in a, in a slightly different way, because I see the way in which his book reached uh, those people in, in the US prior to its publication. Uh, and I'm thinking here of Maury Bernays, uh, and then his, the way in which he tried to influence the State Department to take various crimes which Lemkin identifies, including the crime of conspiracy, right? The crime of conspiracy, I think, is an underestimated part of Lemkin's book. We always focus on genocide, but I think the conspiracy element and the way that feeds into thinking prior to Nuremberg is important. Uh, in terms of uh, his ideas about genocide, the, the language was being used in the United Nations War Crimes Commission. They're all trying to define what it is that's happening, right? And so, you know, denationalization is seen as inadequate for a whole range of reasons. It's just deprivation of citizenship, doesn't really uh, reflect the imposition of the occupiers' uh, nation or culture upon subjected people. Um, and so this notion of genocide fills a certain gap, uh, which, although all the, a lot of people are talking about the same things, and I think, you know, Manfred Lack's indictment uh, from January 1945 is probably the closest that we get um, to something quite similar. Um, but genocide is just one of those ideas which is circulating to describe uh, a particular phenomenon particular set of crimes, and I think it's quite important. It is quite important to the way in which thinking develops, but it doesn't it doesn't have an overbearing influence on the work of the War Crimes Commission uh, during these years from 45 onwards. It's one of these ideas which takes time to take root, and it's part of a conversation with other notions which are circulating around this period of, like, you know, late 45 onwards, I would say. Thanks very much. You mentioned Manfred Lacks a minute ago, and I actually had my next question was going to be about him anyway, because he is in, I mean, maybe the cardinal example, but hardly the only one uh, for those who are strongly, strongly encourage everyone to read the book to get all of the stories. Uh, personal continuities that actually make it possible for the war crimes office to continue to function after the de-recognition of the Polish government in exile, because this is quite a quite a striking caesura. Your book doesn't stop yes. <laughs> when the Brits cease to recognize the London government. The story continues, and in fact, the war crimes fight continues. The Polish participation in the UNWCC continues, and some of the same people uh, yes. are there. And like you said at the, earlier on, some of them will go back to Poland and, and actually have very um, robust careers after the war in the Polish or international justice system. Why does that work? How does that work? Because at first blush, it seems really quite striking that uh, the jump was made and there was a continuity despite a complete rupture in the state identification of Poland. It, it's very interesting, you know, the the first new head of the office uh, was in London during most of the war. He went back and then became the head, uh, Mishiswav Scherer, uh, and his deputy is Tadeusz Cyprian, you know, who was a very interesting individual, a, a jurist, but also a photographer. Um, and he makes himself very useful. Um, so there's a period from July until, you know, September uh, 1945 where you know, there is not a war office operating or attending meetings at the UNWCC. And because uh, the, the office isn't operating at this point in time, jurists in Warsaw feel as if the indictment at Nuremberg doesn't reflect Polish concerns sufficiently. And so they try to put together a indictment, uh, which they hand over to the Soviet prosecutor, and the draft is um, written by Manfred Lacks. Manfred Lacks decides to continue. Now, he's made this decision, and I think he's made this decision, as I said earlier, because he wants to see these crimes prosecuted. Uh, he's, he's committed towards it. And I think the same probably goes for today's Cyprian. He's an observer at a number of trials across Europe, including the Belson trial. He reports to UNWCC. And so what this allows is for the processual knowledge 
to continue. And I think the government in Warsaw, A, they were short of jurists. They needed people who could operate in the, uh, the UK, London environment. And these people were available. Uh, and they were very good. Uh, so they made this probably wise decision to you know, continue with these people. Uh, and this continues until they bring in Marion Mushkat, uh, you know, towards the beginning of 1947. And Marion Mushkat really goes to work, put in a lot of indictments. Very different legal thinker at this stage. He's another person who had a very interesting legal career, uh, both in terms of what he was arguing in the late 1940s and to you know, the kind of fake arguments that he made a bit later in the 1960s. There's a, there's a bit of a transition there uh, from, you know, essentially a Stalinist to someone who's concerned about human rights. So there's this nice journey this, this individual uh, goes on. Uh, and obviously, Mushkat was an advisor at the Eichmann trial as well. Uh, so he has, he has a very long engagement with the, these types of crimes which were committed during the Second World War. Um, they're all very able jurists. I'm going to pivot for just a moment to another question about method and how you were thinking about and planning the book, which is obviously it is a book about institutions and about legal knowledge, but it is also in some sense collective biography, at least to some extent. Uh, and I mean, just the example you gave a moment ago with Mushka, right? The, a casual listener can listen to our conversation and say, ah, Eichmann trial. Wow, there really is a kind of global flow in play here. Uh, and I'm curious if when you started writing the book, you made a point of wanting to try to bring out those individual stories, or if you had to hold yourself back a little bit, because I'm sure they could have overwhelmed the uh, the story of ideas too. Uh, yes, I mean... These things are difficult getting the right balance between, you know, the the high politics, the organisations of these very different institutions. And the book has, it mentions an awful lot of various legal fora. Uh, and the important thing I would say to, to, to read is that these interconnect. We're talking about journeys of more or less the same people moving from one institution to another institution. They're always talking to each other. They're always developing the ideas. And quite often, uh, the same theme is being discussed in different ways over time. So what you are tracking when you're going through these debates is, A, the development of the ideas, but also the development of the relationships between these individuals uh, and how they are approaching the same problem as their particular situation changes, their own commitments change as the war develops. So I think this is a, a fascinating look at you know, how these relationships and ideas actually developed in a particular context. Uh, and that's that's quite exciting because, you know, once you get the document, you can really tell this, this story in a particular way. But there is a balance to be struck. And, you know, there, there are some things which didn't make the final cut of the book. For example, Manfred Lacks, during these years, during the war years, was quite often a colourful individual. Uh, you know, we've got some interesting material on from Schwarzbart's, Ignacy Schwarzbart's diary, uh, Manfred Lacks was his secretary for you know a number of years, uh, so we've got these lovely assessments of his character when he's a young man, uh, which contrasts somewhat with you know the idea of a of a sage jurist in, that we get when he's an international uh, well known person uh, from sixty eight onwards. So yes. <laughs> Well, I'll flip the the same question to, uh, in some sense, and ask about the choice of the examples from the charge files that you picked, because I, mm -hmm. I, I'm particularly struck by, I mean, I'm, the whole book is really striking, but finishing the book by talking about some of the Polish collaborators uh, and those who not extradited, for example, like Bohun Dombrowski from the Holy Cross Mountain Brigade, uh, there's obviously a, a uh, 21st century political resonance to that story. I don't know if you want to get into it, but the uh, examples like Władysław Dering, uh, mm -hmm. this is someone who, you tell the story, he was in Warsaw during that interregnum in between when London was in charge and Warsaw was in charge of the Polish war crimes office. And he left Poland and then the new Polish government wanted to try to get him back. But if you could maybe just uh, say a few words about who caught your attention and what the, you think the most telling examples were in terms of Poles whom the uh, the post-war government wanted to have extradited and put on 
the UNWCC's list. Yeah, I mean, the, the ones who they try to get are, are basically uh, very specific individuals who they couldn't get hold of through normal extradition procedures and try to get them through the UNWCC. Um, and as you say, I mentioned Bohan Dombrovsky, who many witnesses describe what him and his his group were up to. And this is this is an individual who crossed over the Nazi lines, ended up in Flossenburg, um, and is currently, you know, among certain circles at the moment, is enjoying some some sort of revival, which I think is very misplaced. Uh, and he was, according to the charge files, uh, he was accused of. Uh, murder and other his group was accused of murder and indeed rape, um, and I think it's important, you know, to to, to recognise that there were attempts to bring uh, non-Germans uh, to to justice who committed crimes. Uh, so that's probably the most important one. During is a very interesting example because you know there's been so much written about During. I know there's a very important project underway at the moment on During. Uh, and his story is interesting because he's he was in Auschwitz. He was part of Vitor Pelecki's group. Uh, he played a role in the underground within the Auschwitz camp. And then he performed horrendous medical experiments. Um, and as you say, he, he eventually made his way into, into Britain. Uh, Paul sought his extradition. He was in Brixton prison for uh, several months. Uh, and... Luckily for him, he wasn't extradited because a, a witness couldn't identify him. And then, of course, we get to hit, you know, much later in the 1960s, the Leon Euros trial, where he essentially lost his any reputation he may have had. So it's an interesting case. And I think over the next couple of years, we'll see a lot more about that particular case uh, in, in, the, in the public realm. Well, so, I mean, surrounding these particular examples, of course, is also that question which comes back, we talked about it earlier, dual sensibilities, uh, in that, and you go into this at, at some length, and I, I imagine if you ever want to write a follow-up book, that could be uh, a great candidate, the story of how the legal knowledge that was produced during the war was then bended during the Stalinist years in, in Poland. So I'm curious uh, if you feel like there was a kind of linear trajectory there where it was just possible. And, and clearly Mushkat was, would be one of your examples, I imagine here, of a scholar who was very well-connected in uh, Western Europe, who was part of these international circles, who could then adapt that same language and some of the same logics and turn it against uh, the Polish underground state. Uh, is it? A different story. It seems hard to extricate that story from the. Yeah, it's a little different because because Mushkat didn't have to develop this dual sensibility because he wasn't in London during most of the war. Uh, so his story, I think, is is quite specific. And you know, uh, you know, one of the leaders of the Polish underground state, Kobonsky, uh really did not like Mushkat. You know, he seems quite responsible for. Institute and Stalinist legal system on Poland. Uh, there's an element of truth to that, I guess. Uh, but he was—he wasn't as significant as some other jurists in the, in the foundation of the Stalinist judicial system of the early post-war years. I think the most interesting case is is are those of uh, Cyprian and and Lax, because you know they were very well aware of the nature of the Soviet Union. I mean, they they'd seen a lot of the reports which arrived from the underground state. And they could also assess or be aware that some of the people who had some connection to the material that they were using and had been sent to London uh, were now languishing in one or other of the prisons of those early post-war years because of their activity in the underground state. And I, I think either they didn't think about it too hard, or they made an assessment and said, well, what's really needs to be done in this situation? And that's to charge these criminals, these German criminals who had murdered hundreds, thousands, millions. And I think that's how they came to own their own personal settlement with that divergence between their legal knowledge of what it means to be human 
right, the rule of law and how this Polish uh, post-war state was being built. It couldn't have been easy. So I'm coming to my last few questions. I wanted to come to the title of the book for a moment, because I'm sure some readers would like to know a little bit more about what the shadow of the Holocaust was exactly. I mean, clearly, there's a kind of intuitive sense here. And obviously, your story is in large part, but but hardly exclusively, as we've been discussing, about uh, reports from this, the territory where the Holocaust was playing out and often reports about the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So w- what was the shadow of the Holocaust and what happened to it? Okay, so the, the title kind of reflects that news of the unfolding Holocaust was being circulated and a lot of people who needed to know knew what was happening from fairly early on. Uh, but it never became a full-on light where people could look at it squarely and seeing it squarely. And so it was always this penumbra. It's always there in the background, never really talked about uh, in the to the degree that it deserved. And only briefly in a couple of occasions, like you know, July 1942, uh, December 1942, then in 1944, when we have news from uh, Hungarian deportations to, to Auschwitz. And so this is, it's almost like an echo, I think, you know, that's circling, people know. And I think what the jurists in the War Crimes Office uh, sought to do was, was to bring into focus through their indictments. And there's a wonderful wonderful letter which the head of the War Crimes Office writes to Cecil Hurst, which I quote in full in the book, where he describes how the War Crimes Office will uh, seek to submit indictments that reflect this incremental development of Nazi policy against against Jews. Uh, so that's the general sense that I was using the the phrase in the shadow. Um, I hope, hope that that reflects how people people will understand it. I, I, I certainly did. I, I think that it it also opens up discussions for other cases where I wonder if similar stories might be told. And you've alluded several times already to. Uh, Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. I'm curious, obviously, that we're entering the realm of speculation here, but uh, what kind of lessons might you imagine from the story that you've told in this book for, obviously, not just Ukrainian jurists, although Ukrainian jurists as well, but more generally, the international legal community today? Okay, I mean, one of the the challenges for these jurists in the 1940s was to ensure a regime of international justice that was adequate for the crimes which had been committed. And through the division of labour, I would say, between domestic courts, uh, which the UNWCC gave additional authority to, because it is an international organisation, and, of course, Nuremberg, uh, the international community... uh, made a significant contribution at this particular point in developing this regime of justice. Now we understand with the situation in Ukraine that there is a hole in this uh, this regime of justice because the war of aggression, the crime of war of aggression is not there, right, as such. I mean, it, it's, it's, it can't be prosecuted. It's very difficult to prosecute it. And so I think the efforts by jurists and politicians to to move forward on that is something they can take inspiration it will be difficult uh but the success to some degree of jurists in the mid-1940s can serve as an inspiration for those who are struggling at this point to get war aggression on 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 the books i think that's something important well let's hope uh my last question for you is going to be what are you working on now what can we expect from you soon Oh, gosh, it's always a very difficult one. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm working a little bit on a, a follow-up project which would be more comparative. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in the French War Crimes Office uh, and René Casson and, and see how, how that develops. Uh, so hopefully, uh, at some point, you know, be opportunity to go to the archives once more and uh, get back into it. Ah, can't wait to read the work. Uh, Professor Michael Fleming, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I want to commend to everyone who's listening uh, Michael Fleming's book, In the Shadow of the Holocaust, Poland, 
the United Nations War Crimes Commission and the Search for Justice out in 2022 with Cambridge University Press. Uh, it's been a pleasure to host you all today. Professor Fleming, thank you again for joining thank us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks.